I love talking about infrastructure because the writing itself, like the act of doing it, is mysterious, unknown, kind of beautifully murky, and really hard to articulate. It's just the creative process. You know, like it's how do we talk about that? And yet, what we can talk about are like the ways that we can make shapes so that we can kind of enter that space. And I think any any process is sort of like that. So any any shape or discipline or, or routine can kind of create a little room for that. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Amy Bender is the author of six books, including The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, The Color Master, and her most recent novel, The Butterfly Lampshade, which came out last year. I loved getting to talk to Amy about how she constructed The Butterfly Lampshade, which is about a young woman whose mother experiences extreme bouts of psychosis and who herself is trying to make sense of her own experiences witnessing events that seem impossible. I think it's a pretty extraordinary book. And um, more broadly, I was just really excited to have a slightly wonky conversation with Amy about some of what she calls the infrastructure she builds around her writing life, the practices she uses to get over her dread of writing or to stay committed to a book even when she barely has 10 minutes a day to work. It's a fun one, especially for people who might be trying to make a sustainable practice out of their artwork. Enjoy. Early on when I was in grad school and starting to take writing more seriously and um, shifted my sort of focus from uh, trying to wait for inspiration and having an idea and sitting down with an idea and maybe making it more sort of a sacred space, lighting a candle, having hours on a Saturday and this kind of um, lovely, but yet not necessarily that productive space for writing versus trying to write more regularly and using boredom more as a jumping off point and seeing what came out of me when I didn't know what was going to emerge and how radically that changed my writing and kind of, I feel like has been a guide to my whole publishing life as a writer. So I feel like it was the threshold from the like courting of inspiration to the courting of boredom. Yeah. How did you used to, I mean, aside from the candle, how did you used to court inspiration? Like, what did that feel like to you? I think it was taking ideas that I would get during the day really seriously. And Anne Lamott talks about like having index cards in your clothes. And I love her book, Bird by Bird, and I love her writing advice. But that is one piece that I have never found useful because all the little notes that I would find wouldn't play out into anything when I would sit down to write. So I think I would have an idea and I'd sit down to try to fulfill the idea on the page. And it was very different than my experience of writing. And I think for me, it's been really like, it has eased up that pressure to feel like, I don't know what's going to show up. And the ideas are submerged. And that's what makes them interesting to me. So let's just find out what bubbles up when I sit down here and versus, you know, you know, like walking around and feeling like, oh, I have a wonderful idea for a short story and then coming home and trying to write it and finding there's nothing to write. Right. What, 
um, what prompted that shift? Was there, was there a particular point in grad school when you thought, oh my God, this is not working. I have to try something else. It was more, I didn't expect the shift to be as shocking as it was to the whole way that my writing, um, the content and how it changed and my relationship to it changed. But I think I just wanted to try the idea of writing regularly, which I never had done. And I felt like if I'm in an MFA, maybe this is a good way to take myself seriously. And so then I kind of made these rules about sitting down for an hour and a half in the morning and, and I just was trying stuff out, but then it was such an itchy, antsy experience to not be able to leave that. Um, it really did sort of create a kind of unease that was really productive. Uh, did you notice a, a shift in the kind of work that came out once you started the new, the new bubbling up method? It was like a major shift. It was really (laughs) startling to me how significant the shift was, but um, I surprised myself a lot more. It got funnier and weirder. It felt more like me. That's what I find so interesting is the work that was less consciously my own felt more like me. I was just talking to Joshua Ferris about his wonderful new novel, and he was saying um, the nonfiction element wasn't working until he fictionalized it, and how that suddenly, you know, as fiction can do, felt closer to the truth and to the emotional core. And I think I just, all, all this stuff flooded in that I think was just waiting for me to get out of the way, and I kind of got more out of the way. I'm I'm really interested in this distinction between what you categorize as a good idea and then what arrives when you're trying, when you're not trying to have an idea. And I'm wondering, I guess, if it felt, if you can like retroactively sense a pattern between what you thought were good ideas and worth writing about, and then what the things were that actually came alive when you just waited for them to appear. Ah, It's a good question. And I think I think what it is, is that like, if I imagine myself walking around and happening upon an idea, it's sort of conceptual, and it's not really language based. It's, it's idea based. It's a, it's a concept. It's a, you know, what if. And for me, once I got the what if down, it was sort of done, you know, like, there, there wasn't that much more to say. Whereas if I'm writing in the moment, then it's, it's held inside a voice or it's held inside an image. And that gives me something to unpack and work with that is usually deeper than just an idea and more like Elliot Holt talks about um, thread count when she's reading something and how, um, you know, she looks to language of having a high thread count, which I always thought was a funny and great way to think about uh, language. And here I think, um, for me, it just felt like if I was leaning into an image or a voice, then um, the language was more interesting and then it had more kind of resonance in some way. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think I might know the answer to this question already, but what was the image or the voice that you kind of used as the epicenter for the butterfly lampshade? I mean, it was the this butterfly 
it was that there was this lampshade, lampshade with these red and gold butterflies and then imagining a dead butterfly in a glass of water that looked exactly like it and how scary that would be. I mean, it was dead, which of course adds a layer of fear, but also maybe wanting to, um, like the velveteen rabbit turns alive and so do the characters in Toy Story. And we love, and I love those stories where things come alive, but when you really imagine it happening, it's so scary. So I think I just wanted to kind of get up a little closer to that idea of animating something that is just an artist's rendering. What would that feel like and look like? Hmm. And why, why Francie? Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to, came to meet, uh, this character, this, well, I guess she starts at, at about eight years old when she encounters the lampshade. Yeah. I like that question. Why Francie? I suppose I had this sign on my wall in writing the book. It feels like different books have different signs. And the one on this one was measured. And I, the voice that kept sort of coming, that was Francie's, felt like a very measured voice within a very chaotic situation. And someone who was really trying to slow things down enough to, like if what happens if you sort of slow a chaotic situation down enough can you get a little handle on it? Because isn't part of it, it sort of blurs into this indistinct mush. And so there was something very measured about her, but and maybe a little stubborn and that she kind of had her way of going about things and she wanted to contend with these memories. And she also had her own concerns and doubts about her own mental health coming from a mom who has psychotic episodes. Francie isn't sure if this is going to pass down to her so that there's both a, a steadiness in her and this potential or fear of slipping out of that. Hmm. Yeah. She's a really unusual or to me, I don't know. She seemed like a really unusual kind of person. Her interiority is so um, measured is a great word for it, but also like intensely focused and sort of almost unemotional. I don't know if, um, I don't know if you would describe her as unemotional. She's sometimes read as a little bit unemotional to me. And she has this fixation on kind of knowing on containment and like knowing the edges of things, Mm -hmm. which felt like such a fascinating trait for a child to have, particularly a child who encounters in real life, in a terrifying way, phenomena that we often hear about or read about in children's books, like the Velveteen Rabbit, where something comes to life that isn't supposed to come to life. She's not at all the kind of uh, little girl who seems interested in fantasies like that. And she's the one who ha- who who really does experience it. Exactly. I mean, I think she can't kind of enjoy the pleasure of those fantasies the way most children would, because I think they're just a little too close to the bone. And in the same way that um, I hear what you're saying in terms of the unemotional, but I guess I think of her as trying to get a grip on things that are kind of swirling about her. And because there's this sort of bottomless pit of a kind of chaotic exterior world so that the emotions 
are there. They're just, um, they're very much held inside exactly what you're talking about, this containment um, and wanting to sort of work that balance. And she's, there is some, because of that sort of measured quality, I think she does invite, it's felt like invited different responses from readers. Um, just a quite, quite a range actually of responses to her, which has been really interesting. I mean, of course. Oh, really? <laughs> tell tell me more. Well, just people either that find her feel very like they relate to her or find her super sympathetic or feel her really deeply or people that find her confusing or cold or people that, you know, like that there's, there's something in that view or gaze on the world that, that does feel like um, it will get sort of, you know, filled in or not filled in in different ways. Yeah, that's interesting. Francie seems to be a character who feels set apart in some way. Like she isn't, there's that beautiful line near the end of the book where she's talking to her cousin, her younger cousin, who's saying like, don't go off and, you know, you know, jet off into some other realm, into some other world maybe. And Francie looks at her and, and, sort of smiles and says something like, well, she's always, she's always lived here as in like, she's always lived in this, in this world. And I've always lived in some, I don't know, nether world. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you kind of, I will like, would imagine that there are people who, uh, find her otherness a point of entry and connection and others who find it estranging. Exactly. Exactly. And I love that you highlight that moment because, that felt really important to me that you, it was instructive to me that Francie's a character who's living in both spaces. And part of what the book is negotiating is her kind of tracking what it was like to grow up in a certain place and what it's like to end up in a different place and which one is hers and where does she belong? And whereas Vicky um, is in a much like if we think of stable as literally just a, a position that is less moved, you know, that is, is steady in a certain way um, that Vicky sort of looks with a certain romance at Francie's point of view, but just also doesn't have that experience. And, and I know like there's so many ways that I can map that onto my relationships with other people too, that I feel like I've been in both positions that there are experiences that I've had that I'll talk about with someone and I know they haven't had it and vice versa that if someone else has gone through something I haven't then feeling the way that I both can um, sympathize and also that there's a different world that they've lived through that I can only know about through what they tell me. something about this dichotomy between like prescribed ideas about what makes a good narrative and then the image of a story bubbling up which to me always feels uh reminiscent of something about the subconscious that I want to that I want to go back to in part because Francie so much seems to be uh 
like in a dialogue with her, you know, exec between her sort of executive functioning thinking brain and her subconscious memory self mm-hmm. that is constantly like bubbling things back up to her. Um, and I guess maybe the question I want to ask is about the relationship that you've developed over time to whatever it is in you that's sending you s- stories or ideas or images up from up from the depths. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And I think it's really true when you say it that there's, there is a parallel between my process as a writer and Francie going into her memories and creating a sort of controlled space in which to access them. It's just that she's accessing memories as a character that supposedly she's lived and I'm sort of inventing them for her, but that there's something about that relationship between like, how do we how do we access these parts of ourselves that are tucked away and, and that she really makes it this project that she very much wants to go look at a very painful time. And, and my, because I'm a fiction writer and because I just can't write honestly in nonfiction in the same way that I like to in fiction, there's something about sort of courting <laughs> the imaginative unconscious soup where, you know, for me, it feels like the ways that I'll court it have to do with creating infrastructures that do have boundaries. And in that way, it's very similar to her. Like, I'll write for a certain amount of time, and I'll stop at a certain amount of time. I'll write at a certain time of day. I'll be done when I'm done. I'll stop when the timer's off. You know, like, it will, it's, it has to have an end point. Um, so that I can, so that I know I can get out. <laughs> like, um, there's a, there was an essay that I wrote about like, um, what is it like to write with certain limitations and how it can be helpful. And in it, there's like a quote about therapy frame. Cause I find this interesting too, about psychotherapy hour, like, you know, a certain amount of time and it stops at a certain amount of time. And, and there was a quote that was something like, you know, we do this so that we can look at the monsters within or look at the monstrous because you can't look at the monstrous if you have like, you know, six hours or you, you know, and as a writer, you can't look at the monstrous for me if it's boundless time. So it has to be netted in in some way. And that's sort of how I try to make some space for it. Yeah. We tell me more about these, um, these boundaries and guidelines that you devise for yourself? Well, I think, and as we talk about it, because it's something I think about a lot and like to talk about, but that it's, I guess it's really that the end point is as important as the beginning point, um, the exit, (laughs) because, and, and to feel um, that even if I wanted to write during the rest of the day, that I won't, that this is the designated writing time. And, and I'm kind of free of it after that. So that it's like a dive into cold water. It's like these things that feel bracing or startling or even frightening. Um, I just know when I can leave and, and Hemingway would leave things in the middle of a sentence. And I think, I think it was Trollope would leave things in the middle of a word with the idea that if you leave when the going's good, you can return to the work with some energy and some interest as opposed to sort of completing something and then returning the next day and feeling kind of spent. So for you, it's about setting really strict 
sort of temporal parameters around the, the when you are going to write in the day, like you write in the morning and then, and that's the, you've jumped in the pool, you've jumped in the cold pool and then it, it, everything else is sort of uh, free after that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been doing these contracts with students where they create a contract where they figure out what they want to do. And now I've had students matching up with students. Like I just really believe in this idea clearly of infrastructure and, um, and to figure out what works for them. And I forget how I was going to connect this, but I guess just, Oh no, it was this, it was that it's really important that they have days off that so that you jump in the cold pool whatever that looks like for you. And then um, you also make sure that it's, that there are times that you get to take a break. So I think for me, that's why once I'm done with the writing that day, I feel really relieved to not have to think about it or dread it or feel bad that I'm not doing it. I've done it. Even if it was, you know, crappy writing day. (laughs) God, that sounds so healthy. And I, there's something also really refreshing about you talking about the experience of dread or of like feeling crappy about it or feeling guilty. But I think a lot of people, I mean, I'll include myself, have such a um, fraught relationship with writing, but it's not something that people seem to talk about very often. This feeling of like, how do I, how do I build this in so that I get it done because I'm committed, I'm committed to it. And yet also it's going to be a thing. It's like jumping into cold water when I don't want to jump into cold water. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the dread is so common, you know, tipping into universal because it's, I mean, it's not true of every writer, but I think it's also hard. Like it's hard work. It's hard to be up for whatever is going to bubble up. We don't know what it's going to be, even if, or if you're working on something and you do know what it is, but it's difficult. Like all of that feels really hard. So I think, yes, for me, all the structures are really about (laughs) fighting the dread by just being like, okay, this is the thing I do. Um, And so I have to do it because it's the thing I do. And then now I'm done and I cannot think of it. And essentially when not thinking of it, then I can let it go back to that kind of unconscious place and work happens there. And it's usually the better work than I can do inside my thinking mind. Hmm. Are there other infrastructures that you build around your, your creative process or your writing life? Not really. I mean, there, there was long ago, I had like a big closet in my apartment and I tried it out spatially so that I had a kind of enclosed space, but it was, it really became more of like a fun thing to show people. (laughs) Like it was really just funny to look at my little desk in the closet because it was, it didn't work the same way. I think it was, yeah, it was too concrete or something. So yeah, other than that, and really trying not to look at my phone, um, that's pretty much it. Because I think that basically, like, it doesn't even, nothing needs to even happen. It can just be a sitting there. But in the sitting there, there is a sort of bowl or space for the imagination. Or I think William Maxwell wrote this wonderful collection of fairy tales and he talks about like that's where the bowl image comes from he was like i try to be as open and receptive as i can with my like brain like a bowl or my head like a bowl and ready to receive the ideas um and i suppose i'm just so invested in the kind of non-scarcity model which is like if you are showing up stuff will come up um, 
full of we're full of material, all of us. Hmm. This is just a like a selfish personal question, but like, what do you do? Have you has 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 that theory ever really been tested for you? Have you ever shown up with your bowl for like days and weeks and weeks at a stretch, and just nothing is nothing is coming? Yeah, yeah. It's usually at the beginning of a project that's kind of state, hmm. and it's terrible. It's so uncomfortable, <laughs> but it does change. Where was that? Where was the beginning of the butterfly lampshade? Like what stage were you at with this piece, with this story, when that that phase happened? It's interesting because it um, it collided with this major shift in my life, which was becoming apparent. And I had twins at the I guess it was 2013. And they're eight now, but it was like for a good year and a half, I wasn't really writing much of anything. And then I had like 10 minutes during their second nap. Like it was just clearly I'm very like a time structured person. So it was like we had a real schedule for twins are down for a nap and then I'm sleeping. Twins are down for their second nap. And I'd be like, okay, I can squeeze in 10 minutes. So in an interesting way for this book, it was a little less torturous than the books when I was writing for a two hour block and had to sit there for two hours with nothing, nothing, nothing. Cause in 10 minutes, if you have nothing, it's over really quick. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'd have my 10 minutes and, but I did like, that's where the image of the butterfly came in. And that's where this idea of her staying with her aunt came in and I just didn't know what to do with them. And then as the, the kids grew, I got a little bit more time and then I could slowly develop it but that so I would say this book kind of had a different germinating process because of that and some of the short chapters are a reflection of me at those times sort of playing with a more condensed amount of writing time oh my god 10 minutes 10 minutes a day 10 minutes a day I'm such I'm it's like I'm ready to stand on a street corner shouting (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing, Jordan. It's so interesting. It's so interesting what 10 minutes a day is different than zero minutes a day. Or as Cheston Knapp, a wonderful writer who has a great book of essays, but I was once talking about it with him at Tin House, and he was like, um, it's infinitely longer than no minutes. That's that's so exciting to think about. Isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, that's some, there's something really thrilling about the idea of, of it being possible with 10, you know, 10 intense minutes a day, even because I don't know, I think there's, I think there's a misconception among maybe among non-writers, but writers too, that it like requires, you know, big swaths of time and, you know, luxurious residencies and all kind, you know, all kinds of time. Right. Right. And the idea that it can really be, you know, stolen, uh, while you're waiting for the coffee to brew or something, um, feels so liberating. Yeah. Well, and it's like, if you, if we go back to your other question about how do you sort of court the unconscious stuff, I actually feel like in the big amount of time, although it's lovely, if you're feeling particularly focused and concentrated at other times, all it is, is just like a a place to invite self-consciousness. And we all know that that's a really unhelpful, um, 
buddy to invite into the writing room is to suddenly be ultra aware of what you're doing. Like, I just feel like the self-criticism, all those things rush in. So what's so interesting to me about the 10 minutes or a really short amount of time is you're kind of off the hook. Like you're just trying to get something out. And maybe you have many, many days of nothing for 10 minutes, but then eventually something pops up that has a little bit of something in it. Um, Linda Berry, the amazing cartoonist who teaches these great classes, does a lot with like a kitchen timer. She's like, we have 20 minutes, here's your kitchen timer. And then people will write incredible things in her classes. Um, hmm. Pressure, then you have a group. So that actually also helps too. Um, but if we were trying to get ourselves out of the way, like what are these things we can do? And one of them is having it be a tiny bit of time. go back and ask you about the contracts you make with your students or the contracts you have your students make with themselves. What is, what, what is that? What is that process? It, so it was started by a friend named Sarah Shute and she had the idea cause she was working, I think as a paralegal maybe. And so she was doing a lot of contracts and she said, I just wish someone would tell me to write and then I do it. So, um, she was like, well, you do a contract with me. And so we set it up and she wrote it out very like with very wonderful legal language and we co-signed it and she had just like a really clear goal of like three months, an hour a day. And she would email me done by say 10 PM. And I would, whenever I saw the email would just write back check. And that's the only exchange, but she, and now I've done it with a multitude of students and people will say like, they, they start to feel so guilty if they don't do it. So there's this, sense of like responsibility to to send me the done and to do the work but it's also it's also a I don't know I find it so interesting it's a relationship like we are sort of in this very short and quiet way communicating about the importance of sitting down to do the work even if you're not getting anything done you're trying you're sitting down and making space for it um and so I don't know I guess I just I find it kind of moving to just see how having some sort of accountability helps and how for me, um, often being on the end where I'm just saying check, uh, it just makes me happy to get the email and say, Oh, so-and-so did their, did their 20 minutes, did their two hours, did their whatever. Um, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm like imagining now all of the different kinds of contracts you could devise between <laughs> between uh, like two writers who are wanting to hold themselves accountable, not just for time spent, but for I don't know, like uh, you know, types of types of projects undertaken, or I don't know. There's like the idea of making a formal commitment to something creative uh, is kind of exciting. I guess we're just back to talking about infrastructure and what the possibilities are when you have, when you can, uh, give yourself some, I don't know, something to push back against some firm, uh, firm obligation that then you can play within and around. Exactly. I mean, I think I love talking about infrastructure because the writing itself, like the act of doing it is mysterious, unknown, kind of beautifully murky 
and really hard to articulate. It's just the creative process, you know, like it's, how do we talk about that? And yet what we can talk about are like the ways that we can make shapes so that we can kind of enter that space. And I think any, any process is sort of like that. So any, any shape or discipline or, or routine can kind of create a little room for that. So I just find it endlessly interesting. Yeah. I had a student come to me the other week and she, this is her first time in a workshop where it's just kind of an open and nobody's giving topics or anything. You just sort of bring in your writing. And she was like, I just, I don't, I don't even know. I can't, you know, there are too many options. There's too much that I could write about. There are too many ways the forms could go. Like, what do I, you know, I can't do, I feel paralyzed by the options. Um, she's like, I wish someone would just tell me, you know, give me a constraint. Totally. And I was like, yeah, that makes so much sense. Do you want me to give you a constraint? <laughs> you know, like just make, just make one up. You know, there's, you know, there's no, uh, there's, there's no like constraint fairy that you're waiting on. You can just, I don't know, choose one or a couple and then see what happens. She was like, oh my God, you can. Um, and I feel like so much of figuring out how to make any creative work sustainable is figure is both discovering the agency that you have in creating the systems you need. And then also just in the long journey of figuring out what the systems are that you need, right? Um, which I don't know, is, keeps, go keeps going and going. No, I mean, I think she's like, I so understand and relate to what she's saying. And I think what happens actually, which is interesting to me, is that without the constraint, like she's actually quite wise in knowing that she needs it. Because with those infinite choices, I think we go back to the familiar and we go back to what we, you know, you're like, I guess I'll just write about this or that. And I think the choices can be more conventional and more conservative just because they're too many. The thing that this was making me think about is back to the butterfly lampshade is the way that Francie has this habit of asking people to lock her in her bedroom. Like yeah. she wants to be locked in. She wants this very definite and like physical constraint put on her in order to feel safe. Yeah. And it's just, just reminding me of this feeling of this, this thing that we're talking about of in order kind of for creativity to maximally blossom, we almost want to like lock, you know, not lock it in a room, but do, you know, put some, put some real strong parameters on it so that it can, I don't know, so that it can go wild in sort of different directions. Whereas, you know, Francie's just I don't know. She's just trying to be alone with herself or I guess with her, her mind or her memories. Yeah. And even like in that, I mean, I think that's, that's an interesting parallel too. And when I think of like, initially she sort of feels like she needs to be locked in because she doesn't trust herself and she's, there's a baby in the house and she's just not sure of her own violent impulses. And if she's, of a, if she's a danger to anyone, but there is a point in the book that, I think maybe is worth sharing. I don't think it's a spoiler, but there's a point where she's sort of reconsidering it and thinking maybe part of being locked in the room is that if you're locked in a room as a sort of um, conscious choice, then someone will release you in the morning. And it's actually about sort of being known and being connected and that that, in my mind, is a real shift for her. And instead of thinking, I'm a monster and I need to be locked in so I won't hurt anyone, it's like, maybe I want 
to always have someone who has me in mind in the morning. And when you connect it to writing, I do think there is a relationship in that all this work, all these parameters, all this infrastructure, all this trying to court the the subconscious and the sort of unconscious impulses that are there is because it's a way to access material that hopefully will connect with the reader and that there is maybe the sort of locked door of the book, but then the reader unlocks it by opening it. And that something has, in terms of thresholds, right, something really shifted to me um, maybe 10 or so years ago, thinking that what I had viewed as this writing that was in a way for me and sort of me expressing and thinking about these things was so much about this connection to this invisible reader and wanting and sort of yearning to express something in some way that would move and affect someone else. And so I think they're, I think they are linked in that way. What was 10 years ago that that changed for you? I don't know. I mean, maybe just some growth on my own part, like a little, little bit of growing up, you know, just some, some sense of, I, I don't know. I don't know how to, there was some kind of just like a little bit of reckoning in terms of my own sense of why do I do this and what is it for and what, what is, what is the, communication and the connection that is inside a book that I feel when I read a book that I'm that I love and feel moved by and how much I want to allow that connection to happen with a reader so yeah it's you could probably point to like various factors of things in my life but I think it does boil down to just kind of a, a little bit of a personal reckoning had you begun to lose faith in the the book as a as a vehicle for connection like that or had you just gotten confused about the way you wanted to to do that or something else entirely I think it was maybe being a little less guarded actually like I think it was less about losing faith and more about um realizing how much I yearned for that connection and to how much the reader was a part of my experience of writing, not a specific reader, but a reader. And, and maybe before I just hadn't, it was just like a tiny bit more guarded in some way in my mind in terms of just feeling like, why am I writing? It's just for fun. Or it's just because I have these ideas and thoughts and it, you know, like it, but it wasn't like acknowledging that it is a conversation. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.